Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The opening of the new Congress has been a jolt of energy in the midst of a stultifying government shutdown. And the arc to the 2020 elections is beginning to emerge. Let's talk about these strange days in Washington with Steve Clemens, uh, Washington editor-at-large for The Atlantic. Thanks a lot for joining us, Steve Clemens. Good to talk with you. My, my pleasure, Jerome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, you know, it was so wild yesterday seeing Nancy Pelosi, a Speaker of the House, lots of new Congress people, uh, Native Americans, yeah. Muslims. Uh, there's such a, a diversity within the Democratic Party now. Uh, what what did you what did, what did you take away from all this uh, excitement and and talk? Well, I, I was on the Hill yesterday and visited a number of both Republican and Democratic um, celebrations of this event. I watched particularly the Senate floor, in which there were moments of bipartisan hellos and gestures, which were notable. Uh, and and you know, I think that there is an enthusiasm that that the game has changed. That that. You know, even even I mean, like I don't want to go too far with this, but even among Republicans, a sense that there's been something that's been restored to the democratic system by having the tensions, you know, change. Um, and I and what I mean by that is that Nancy Pelosi becoming the Speaker, the House, um, you know, they know. I mean, I'm not naive about this. You know, and certainly people like continuing, but there was a concern, I think, on both parties that unless something changed in the equation, that the status quo was very dangerous for the country. Uh, and, I, and I felt that in Republican offices as well as Democratic. But there was a real enthusiasm. I was at Mitt Romney's uh, uh, you know, party, and you know, Mitt Romney had a very provocative op-ed that seemed to challenge Donald Trump and the way he was doing things. And you know, his place was full. I was with John Tester, Senator Tester of Montana yesterday, uh, Amy Klobuchar and T- uh, Tina Smith, both, you know, senators of Minnesota. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, just across the board, there was an enthusiasm uh, for things, uh, despite the depressing reality that the government um, is, is shut down and, you know, to some degree shut down. And many federal workers are furloughed right now, which, you know, I think is lurking uh, behind all of the enthusiasm of yesterday. But I was really struck just by uh, a, a more positive energy than I have felt in this town in a long time. I'm talking with Washington editor-at-large for The Atlantic, Steve Clemens, and we're talking about what's happening in Washington with the new Congress people coming in. And coming up after the break, we're going to have our film contributor, Milo Stalik, who interviews the world's great filmmakers. And he's going to speak with uh, Lebanese filmmaker Nadine Labaki. Her uh, new film, Capernaum, is at the Music Box, and it is a much-lauded uh, look at a human rights abuse against children and it follows uh, a 12-year-old Lebanese boy who um, sues his parents. So we'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, Steve, Steve, you know, the shutdown itself, though, uh, the, we seems to be at um, the same standoff as it was before the new Congress. Um, did, that, did the change in the equation change anything with the, the standoff? I mean, Donald Trump's talking about using the military to build the wall, and um, things seem just the same. Well, I mean, I think on a substantive level, things um, are, are are in many ways worse uh, than they were the day before. I mean, that's a different than the emotion I felt yesterday. I think on the substantive level, you know, the fact is that the Democrats over over yesterday, uh, a historic change in power essentially just happened where the Democrats became enormously powerful uh, and have been sending signal after signal that the president has got to grow up, has got to learn how to compromise, has got to... Uh, uh, come around on some things, and they're not going to allow, you know, what uh, 
uh, Nancy Pelosi called an immoral act in terms of, of, of contributing to the notion of a wall. I mean, they're happy to negotiate on border security and whatever that means and, and is defined by, but the, but the president's singular obsession with a wall uh, is something that they're not willing to. So the chances of the president getting a deal with a Congress that he just lost, that he used to have, you know, total Republican control of, just got a lot worse. So, uh, you know, what we're, we're now having to measure is the president's, you know, resilience uh, and, and to what degree he will continue to be intransigent. So in terms of that, things actually got much worse and didn't stay the same. <laughs> And now, so it, I mean, there's no. Uh, at some point, somebody's got to give here. Somebody's got to blink yeah. in this thing. Well, you would think, and you would think it's not clear which which side that will be as of yet. Um, you know, it's interesting. I just made my reservations to fly to the World Economic Forum in Davos, uh, which will be the 21st to the 25th of January, and the president has indicated he's going to be there the morning of the 22nd. And it just occurred to some of us, you know, will the government be operating and running when the president goes to Davos, Switzerland, and the World Economic Forum? You know, what will that look like? And so, we, and, and, the, and the true answer is none of us know. Uh, the, the, the Democrats just tried to float an idea, uh, and I think they actually passed, I have to go back and pass a bunch of Republican constructed appropriations bill that would fund about 90% of the government, everything beyond Homeland, uh, you know, Homeland Security. And, and these were all Republican crafted bills without the Democratic opposition saying, hey, these are things you guys did and we're willing to pass them just to get the government back and running. So, so they're being, they're, they're creatively approaching this. The Democrats are in ways that are creating ultimate, I mean, incredible pressure for Republicans. You know, I was looking at the executive branch and the number of cabinet officials. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of vacancies in the cabinet. The it's interior, like the, the cabinet. <laughs> it's the interior the cabinet. We'll meet with the president Trump today. <laughs> the interior, the attorney general, the secretary of defense. He needs a chief of staff. Um, it, he needs right. a lot of employment help. I. I wonder, I mean, how do you, you know, think about, there, there's a lot of articles about how isolated the president is now and how, um, you know, he's not listening to people. And uh, how, how do you read the whole uh, negotiation between him and his own executive branch right now? I think things are very toxic. And um, I think there are real problems, as everyone who's been analyzing and commenting on this sees for the president and look, I don't want Donald Trump to fail as a president. I would like him to somehow have an introspective moment to come in and realize, you know, I'm not a critic. I'm not a Democrat. I, you know, I, I, I keep my distance uh, from both parties and just sort of look at this as objectively as I can. Uh, and in this, you know, when you want to basically look, does the president have a team of people who can execute and implement uh, an agenda that's that's both healthy for the country and and that um, addresses the needs and desires of the nation as a whole, including his base. And I I think that's a doable thing, uh, and that there are people that are excellent um, folks in the Republican Party uh, and in the Democratic Party. I think he would be very smart to have you know continued to 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 find ways to bring Democrats into his cabinet as well, um, who can help him execute. But he is become so centrally focused and so focused, whether it's on the Mueller investigation and bending these institutions to his will in what I would say are inappropriate ways, like, for instance, doing what you just talked about of using the military, the American military, 
um, as an act of deadly force, if you will. No one's saying that, but that's what the military is used for at the border with Mexico, which is a crazy uh, it's a crazy thing, whether you were a Republican, whether you were a McCain Republican, a Romney Republican, a George H.W. Bush or a George W. Bush Republican, even a Dick Cheney Republican. That would be a crazy thing to do. And and not enough people in this environment are willing to tell the president that he has no clothes on some of these subjects and that he needs to step back, think and ponder what's in the health of the country and even his own administration, because he can't get enough excellent folks right now to come join him. Uh, And it's damaging him, it's damaging his legacy, and it's damaging the nation. Now, one of the interesting names that has been floated for Secretary of Defense is Jim Webb, the former senator from Virginia. He was a Democrat then. He's been a Republican before that. He has some iconoclastic kind of ideas uh, that almost mesh up with Donald Trump's. It's uh, an interesting choice, and he's he's a veteran. He would be an interesting choice as the Secretary of Defense. He is a fascinating man, and I was was as intrigued as you were in seeing – Jim Webb's name float. He was a former, if if I have it right, Secretary of the Navy. I mean, I've I've known Jim for a long time. You know, he's a novelist. (laughs) He he and I uh, became acquainted years ago with Chalmers Johnson, whom you knew well. Chalmers and I were both uh, interested in the issue of POW lawsuits against the government of Japan and and uh, uh, reparations for the for the time for you know linking back to uh, our soldiers in World War II. And Jim. Uh, was a journalist who was writing about uh, many of these issues and did an extraordinarily good job, in my view, at that. He was the first U.S. senator, and I always give him credit for this. We've made a lot of – well, we've made some progress, but it looks like big cro- progress on criminal justice reform. But Jim was the first United States senator to say, we are over-incarcerating black Americans. We have uh, drug laws that have, are a stacked deck against uh, uh, many people in our in our cities, and we do not have – a system of giving people another chance. And Jim was the first senator to go out and do that. He was the first senator to come out and begin saying we needed to um, decriminalize a lot of drug uh, uh, drug issues and drug laws. So, I mean, he, he has these progressive and interesting streaks in him, uh, but he's also ferocious on national security, and he's a ferocious realist. He's not a neoconservative. He's not a crusader. And so a lot of his views about withdrawing and becoming shrewder, if you will, and more careful about how you use the American military instrument are what Jim Webb is about. And I think he would be a very interesting choice. And I read uh, an interesting piece in The Atlantic by Jim Fallows, who's kind of mulling over um, Mr. Webb. And somebody wrote into him and talked about how he's, you know, I mean, he's a kind of pugnacious thinker. And in February of 2017, he condemned the Democratic Party for embracing identity politics, moving very far to the left and um, losing key constituencies. He didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. He refused to rule out having voted for Donald Trump. So he's he's someone who is uh, in Trump's ballpark in a lot of ways. Well, he is. I mean, if you if the Democrats had a pugnacious nationalist, Jim Webb is that person. Uh, you know, if it, you know, I used to tell people, you know, Richard Holbrook often like Richard Holbrook, you know, were the you know the Democrats, Henry Kissinger. So, so yeah, Jim Webb does does fit that you know sort of unrepentant, uh, pugnacious Virginia nationalist that that, and he played that role in the Senate. Um, and of course, he was uh, against the Iraq War, which is one of his he was against the Iraq War, and he was cards, using, yeah, he was against just jumping into every. 
crusader problem in the world. And he was very, very aware, uh, in my view, and I say this as a compliment, uh, that America's stock of power um, needed to be used cautiously, that a lot of American foreign policy uh, is a function of the mystique of America being able to um, have virtually no limits. And, and, he, and he was one, and he and I had, had dinner and talked about it uh, on one occasion, where demonstrating economic limits, demonstrating military limits, the first casualty of that is that your allies won't count on you as much as they will the next day. That's before your enemies uh, do something. And I just found the framing of that to be refreshing and smart in a way where whether it was um, Hillary Clinton and a lot of the crowd around her were very much you know, tied around um, various global justice agenda items that were important, but yet really didn't understand that America doesn't have unlimited resources and unlimited ability to be involved in all things. And you had to make choices. And what, what Webb was advocating at that time was a better thing. And I remember Jim Webb uh, really took on Hillary Clinton over an, an uh, Iran-related war resolution that was a lot like <clears throat> the Iraq war resolution that Hillary Clinton, that Joe Biden and other people had, had supported. Jim Webb put a counterpiece up there uh, to basically close that from uh, becoming yet another uh, uh, gaping hole that a new war could be born from. Uh, and I admired Jim Webb for challenging Hillary Clinton at that time in the Senate and, you know, not allowing a kind of Lieberman, Joe Lieberman led. I mean, I don't know these, you know, a lot of these names are names of the past or folks, but they did matter. And that's part of the way we got into the Iraq war was a resolution that just created a way to empower the president to come in and invent a war, if you would, with Iraq. And Jim Webb shut that down with Iran in the United States Senate, uh, right as Hillary was challenging President Obama, uh, not yet Obama, Senator Obama, uh, for the for the Democratic um, uh, nod in, in that presidential race. So if Jim, Jim Webb would come in and he would be the kind of guy who would be uh, on board probably with the withdrawals from Syria and Afghanistan and this kind of smaller footprint thing. Yeah, but here's the big mistake people are making with President Trump on the issues of Syria and Afghanistan. Ultimately, as you know, I largely agree with the president on those outcomes. But the but the notion of spitting in the eye of allies, of abandoning people that have built in with you in the way we're doing, the manner and process is why Jim Webb le- or uh, Jim Mattis uh, resigned, not the ultimate notion of leaving Syria or, or drawing down uh, in Afghanistan. And I think to conflate those is a major mistake. Jim Webb would support those ultimate policy decisions, but he would uh, act with uh, gravitas and seriousness and mutual respect with our allies. And he would do things to secure, uh, as best we could, the place of our allies in Syria, uh, the Kurds. And he would do things with the Turks to make sure that they didn't run rampant over this, that he would he would shape that environment in a realist way that made sure that our not only American equities from a national security perspective, but our alliances did not suffer these major convulsions and ulcers that 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 they now have. Uh, And I think people need to understand that Donald Trump's uh, style is offensive to allies and it gives foes and rivals far too much um, leeway. And I think this is where Webb, if he were in this position, and I know him well enough that he will demand this from the president if he were to come, he's going to manage that the way he the way he uh, uh, thinks is appropriate in a way of shoring up our allies again. 
Steve, I want to ask one quick question about uh, the 2020 elections and how they're shaping up. And now that we've got a new Congress in. Everyone is running. Everyone I went to a party for is running. I know. It's it's an amazing uh, lot of field of candidates. And I was interested that some are, you know, it seems like uh, someone like Elizabeth Warren is going to stress inequality. Uh, There's talk of Jay Inslee, the Washington governor. He's going to stress climate change. Uh, The Democrats just won stressing health care. Are these the, um, you know, does some candidate, um, can some candidate ball this up into some kind of uh, thing? Well, I, you know, I I think some candidate will. Uh, They're always, we go through this process of wondering who will be the best candidate right now. It's just too far away, too many factors to know who the American public will congeal around. And we think about personality and behavior. But fundamentally, we already know what the issues are going to be. They're going to be the things you said. Uh, the, the national anxiety about health care costs and health care access are clearly going to be among the top agenda items. And also, as this economy continues to churn, you know, I've done a, I've got a lot of friends who've done uh, focus groups around the nation in Iowa and elsewhere around the country. But the but the reality that people understand is coming is that whether it's A.I. or or, you know, the, you know, the way the future of work, there's an anxiety about transitions, not that people are going to be displaced from jobs. They know it's going to happen. But how do they afford? How do they train for? How do they make some transition into something next? These are clearly the items. If you go poll in Iowa, they're number one and number two uh, on everyone's minds. If you go to Kentucky, if you go to Virginia, you go to Arkansas, you go to Florida, same same thing across the board. So that's going to be the package of policy issues in addition to other uh, questions. You know, certainly, you know, inequality and all of that kind of big generic stuff is up there. But when you get down to the core, it's healthcare and anxiety about economic transitions and, and job transitions. And I think, you know, I was with a guy who's a big politico from Iowa, uh, you know, who advises a lot of Democrats from Mike Bloomberg and others. And he's taken nine candidates already through the state, uh, declared or undeclared, and uh, was telling me that the themes are the same. But how these prospective candidates respond and create compelling frames and visions for people and, and to the degree that they can meet people where they are, as opposed to from some, you know, what Joe Biden used to call me, some snobbish Democratic uh, a mantle that is telling people, you know, what they need to do as opposed to working with them where they are. I think those are going to be the, the, the ways that what Democrats have to work through. Steve Clemens is the Washington editor at large for The Atlantic. Thanks a lot for joining us and mulling over uh, some of the doings in Washington these days. My pleasure, Jerome. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik. He'll talk with a Lebanese filmmaker, Nadine Labaki, about her new film that's at the Music Box. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Worldview film contributor Milo Stalik interviews the world's great and innovative filmmakers on Worldview. 
This week, he speaks with Lebanese filmmaker Nadine Labaki. The Golden Globes last month nominated her film, Capernaum, as the best foreign language picture. It's at the music box right now. The fictional drama takes a unique angle on human rights abuse against children. It follows a 12-year-old Lebanese boy who decides to sue his parents in court for giving birth to him. So, Nadine... Your film, Kafarnaum, has the most unusual title, certainly, of any film this year or perhaps in any year. So what, <laughs> what, what does that exactly mean? What does Kafarnaum mean, and how did you come up with that title? Um, it's originally the name of a village, of a biblical village that was cursed by Jesus. And so it started being used throughout history in literature, especially French literature, to signify chaos and disorder and hell. You know, I used this word in school when I wanted to impress my teacher. Uh, instead of using chaos uh, or disorder or something, I used to use it just to, you know, impress her and sound a bit more sophisticated. So, so it's a word that I know know very well. Uh, and when we started writing the script, and I started noticing how intertwined all the, you know, the themes I wanted to talk about were, and and I was, you know, all over the place and not knowing which angle to take, and you know, wanting to talk about child labor, and you can't talk about child labor without talking about statelessness, uh, without talking about children who work or who are deprived of their most basic rights, without talking about the absurdity of having to have a paper to prove that you exist, without talking about, uh, you know, the refugee crisis, without talking about the absurdity of borders, without talking about uh, early marriage. So it was all all over the place. And I just noticed when we wrote all those words on a big board, all those themes on a big board, and I, I look at the board and I go, you know, this is chaos. We're living in <laughs> complete chaos. This is Capernaum. Well, because your film is set in Beirut, in the slums of Beirut, and concerns the plight of children who are very central figures, so very tough situations, and a really remarkable boy at the center of it, whose name is Zain, who, incredible conceit, who is suing his parents for giving him life. Yes. Is there an actual case that something happened? No, it was very symbolic. It's not really an actual case, and it was really inspired by all the research I've done, because I did a lot of research when I started writing the film, and I I used to talk to a lot of children in very difficult situations, you know, deprived of their most basic rights, neglected children, and I'm not talking about just neglect or children who are unhappy, I'm talking about extreme neglect and abuse and rape and all that. So I used to ask them at the end of the conversation one question, which is, are you happy to be alive? And most of the times the answer would be no, I'm not happy to be alive. I wish I was dead. I don't know why I am born. I don't know why I was given life if nobody's going to love me, if nobody's going to nurture me, if I'm never going to hear a nice word, if I'm going to be abused and beaten up and raped and so on and so on. And, And those kids are very angry. You know, there's this angry why all the time. Why? Why? Why am I being born? Why am I born? Why? It was this sentence that really inspired that whole court scene. 
And I felt like, how do I translate this anger, this angry why? And it became slowly the story of this kid who was going to sue his parents for giving him life. And by suing his parents, of course, he's suing the whole system. He's suing us, the whole world. He's suing life. Because obviously his parents are victims as much as he is. Because we often think about, of course, and understand the deprivation, the difficult economic circumstances that kids grow up in, the way that they have to work. Zayin's sister is married off to an abusive guy at a very early age. She's 12 years old. So these are all kinds of factual stories, but we don't really often think about the trauma that this produces upon those kids. Yeah. Yeah, and the trauma is far beyond what we can imagine. You know, some kids are traumatized to the extent that there's nothing there anymore. Like, they don't react, they don't talk, they don't uh, play, they don't laugh, they don't dance, they don't sing. You know, if you put a toy in front of them, and we're talking about uh, children who sometimes are two, three years old, four years old, who don't play, you put a toy in front of them, they don't touch it. Because they're in a state of complete shock, complete trauma. And I think it's much more unbearable than we think. Uh, So these kids, we have to be aware that, you know, they're going to grow up one day and they're going to grow up very angry and this is going to explode in our faces. Um, And we're not talking about hundreds of children. We're talking about thousands and millions of children across the world. There's approximately 280 million children who are deprived of their most fundamental rights. Children that work, children that are stateless, just the children that don't go to school. So it's like the problem of the century, I think. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Ilo Stelic speaking with filmmaker Nadine Labaki, whose new film is Kafarnaum. In an odd way, your film, though, leads uh, Zayin, the central character, this 11-year-old or so boy, to a very special place where he finds another outcast, Rahil, who is an Ethiopian immigrant without papers, and her baby child, uh, Jonas. And in a way, that becomes a place of love and refuge that he hasn't experienced before. Yes, absolutely. So where did the character of uh, Zayn is played by this really remarkable boy? How did you find him? (laughs) Zayn is actually a Syrian refugee. He was living in Lebanon for the past eight years in very difficult circumstances because of the situation. You know, in Lebanon we've hosted almost a million and a half refugees and it's almost half the population. So... Um, they say that you know there's one in six people in Lebanon that is a Syrian refugee. So, so you understand how difficult it is for them uh, because of the economical situation that Lebanon is facing. Lebanon is a very small country that is also facing its own problems and economical problems. So, Zain has grew up in very difficult circumstances. He's never been to school. So obviously the the streets were his school. This is where he learned everything. Was where he learned his foul language. This is where he learned how to fight for you know his existence to prove that he exists, how to stand up for his rights, and how to maybe sometimes even avoid the abuse. He had to be clever in order to survive. So even though he has you know parents and he has a house and he has loving parents, but still they couldn't protect him from the streets. So we found Zane in his neighborhood next to, you know, the house uh, where he used to live. And he was on the streets and the casting director saw him and interviewed him. And it was obvious, you know, he stood out from all the hundreds of children that we saw. 
Zane stood out. He has the wisdom and the personality that we needed for the film. Because he is sensitive on one hand, and at the same time, he's very resilient and tough. So it's kind of an odd combination. Yes. But how did you bring this out? Because just picking a boy off the street, no matter how talented, doesn't make that child automatically a good actor. Uh, I never asked them to act. Actually, you know, all of them, all of the actors in the film are non-actors. This is the first time they act. This is the first time they are in front of the camera. So I didn't really ask them to act. I just wanted them to be themselves, to be who they are, but in front of the camera and in a certain situation. So it was obvious to me that it was impossible that I was going to ask a child actor to understand what it means to be abused, what it means to be mistreated or beaten up or or suffer or hungry. Or it was for me, it, it was important that I work with people who are, uh, you know, having the same struggle in their own life, because I. Th- truly believe that cinema can have a completely different impact when it does this. When you are watching a film with people that are almost having the same struggle in their real life, you know that when you leave this movie theater, those people that you just watched on the big screen are actually living that life that they showed you or struggling with it. So it has a completely different impact on you as a viewer. And this is what I wanted. I wanted some kind of... uh, change of perspective. You know, when you hear about problems in the news, sometimes you hear about them in figures and numbers and statistics, and it's just too abstract sometimes to really understand how it feels and what it really is. Cinema can actually humanize the problem. It puts a face on the problem. It makes you see it, see the real struggles through a character, whether it's a woman or a child or a family or a man or whoever, but you actually see it, you understand it, you feel it, you empathize with it, you identify with it, you understand the human reaction to certain situations. So I think it does have a complete impact on you as a viewer. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stalik speaking with filmmaker Nadine Labaki, whose new film is called Kafarnaum. Nadine, two of the things that you do here, uh, which I think are really important, is that you really create this atmosphere of the noise of the streets, for example. And then second of all, that you very often show us uh, Zion from a very subjective point of view, the camera being just above his head. So we're really seeing things kind of through his eyes, and that brings us empathetically closer to him. Yes, absolutely. It was important that we see it through his eyes. That was the igniting point of all this adventure and all this film. You know, sometimes I would see kids on the street, very small kids, and I would ask myself, if he were to speak, what would he say? What would he tell me? How does it feel to be so ignored? How does it feel to be almost non-existent in the eyes of the world? Because this is the situation. This is the situation. These people are invisible. And we treat them as invisible because we don't want to acknowledge the problem. We don't want to see it. We don't want to look at it. So we choose to keep living and to go on with our lives because we feel helpless. We don't know how to help, and we feel too small in front of such a big problem. So we just say, okay, I can't do anything about it. So I'm going to live as if it doesn't exist. So this was the ignition point for me. I wanted to understand what goes on in the heads of those children 
that we don't see? How does it feel to be ignored, to be non-existent? And that's why it's from the point of view of a child. Because, you know, children are most of the time represented by somebody, represented by a lawyer, by a guardian, by their parents, by a social worker. They don't really get to say what they feel. We don't hear them because we think we know better when actually they are the truth because they are not modified by our society's codes and they're not influenced yet. They're still natural and raw raw nature. So actually it's them who are most of the time telling us the truth, but we think we know better. So we so we represent them and we speak in their names, but they can really... Um, blow your mind how clever and how wise they can be and how they have really the truth in them. So someone seeing your film and seeing the voice of Zion come through in many ways, in a very universal way, really for all of the millions of children who are in similar situations, which is not just in Lebanon, of course. It's absolutely everywhere in every country of the world. Yes, yes. What would you, as a filmmaker, having spent a lot of time on this film, researching it, and then, of course, making it, so obviously it was something that you were very passionate about and comes from your heart, what should an audience member do, somebody who sees the film? I think the first thing that is really happening is changing your perspective as an audience, as, as a viewer. And this is what's happening. You know, people tell me, I've changed forever. I'm not looking at those kids the same way. I'm not looking at those people the same way. There's something in me that is uh, asking me to act. I want to do something about it. I've changed forever. And I'm talking about what people tell me and what I read and what I have as, as letters and mails and comments from people. This is what I hear the most, that there's a change of perspective and that's what I want to achieve, because this is how you start really implementing change. And I don't want to sound too naive or too ambitious, but I truly believe that small things can really change you sometimes. And even if you don't want to, uh, I truly believe in the power of each one of us, and each one of us can actually make a change. And, and we, if we all just decide that this is not the way it should be. Why, why? It's very strange that we're not all on the streets uh, in a way. I don't know how to. Can't find the word. Well, we're not. We're not doing what Zion's doing, which is suing every one of yes. our governments. Yes. yes, exactly. How come we're not all manifest? Not manifesting. Protesting. 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 How come we're not all protesting in the names of those children? Why is it that we accept this? This is the biggest crime anyone can do. So why are we just part of this crime? Why are we participating in a way by being silent? In, in French, uh, I don't know if there's an equivalent in English, but you say non assistance à personne en danger. So when you're not helping somebody who's in danger, you're actually participating in the crime. And yeah. this is what we're doing by staying silent and by just living our lives just because these children are not ours, because they have their parents, so you said, okay, he has his parents, let them deal with it. It's also our, our problem, I think, and, and it's going to explode in our faces one day because these children are very angry, and one day they're going to grow up, you know, we're talking about millions of children.
whether Lebanese or, or Syrians or Palestinians or Ethiopian or Brazilian or Indian or African or Mexican or even American or children are children and I'm not talking about the political uh, situation or geographical situation I'm talking about children in general that are suffering throughout the world and we're not doing anything about it I mean of course there's a lot of people doing a lot of things about it but I think we should be doing more We are all complicit and we are all responsible. Yes. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stalik speaking with filmmaker Nadine Labaki, whose new film is called Kafarnaum. Thank you, Nadine. Thank you. Kafarnaum is at the Music Box Theater. Coming up next, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have a global good time on the weekend. We'll go to Puerto Rico for the Three Kings Festival. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have a global good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is here. Great to see you, Nari. Happy New Year. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Tell us, uh, where would you like to take us first? We're going to go to Japan first. And uh, there is a trend. that We're going to go to Japan via a trend started here in Chicago, actually. And there is a trend called City Pop, which is about the disco of the 70s being adopted and remixed by Chicago, but with a very Japanese tint to so, it. So this is Japanese music from the 70s exactly. and 80s, and it's being remixed by Chicagoans, and they're play, they're, people and are a, dancing and having fun. Catching on. <laughs> Here's an example. see this happening, Nari. I know I can see why this I, is a trend. This is pretty cool stuff. It's Maria Takuchi singing Plastic Love over uh, there. <laughs> and there's going to be an event going on this weekend called Lost in Translation 70s and 80s Japanese Jazz, Disco, and Funk. And it's happening Sunday night, uh, 9 p.m. to 12.30 a.m., running into Monday morning. These are not my hours. <laughs> exactly. It's happening at the Whistler, 2421 North Milwaukee uh, in Chicago in the uh, Wicker Park area. All so, right. Sounds like fun. I would like to explore this idea more. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we, we should we should do some events with them in the future. So, uh, All right. cool stuff. Uh, next up, our feature event, where are we going? Actually, yeah, the Three King Winter Festival and Parade happening uh, in 
It's uh, it's done by the Puerto Rican community here in Chicago. It's happening Sunday, January 6th from 3 to 7 p.m. at Pase Boricua, which is uh, where people will be assembling around Campbell and Division. And this is a very kid-friendly event. And we were originally told that there are going to be 500 gifts given to young people. Now it looks like it's upwards of 1,500 to 2,000 gifts to Whoa. be given to kids to celebrate the Three King uh, ceremony. Uh, which uh, and, uh, and we have a great guest to explain all that's going on. Jose Lopez is here, Executive Director of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center and leader in the Puerto Rican community. Great to see you, Jose. Thank you, Jerome. And let me first and foremost uh, thank WBZ, Worldview, and you for the attention that you have given to Puerto Rico and the Puerto Ricans for the past uh, since Maria. And I think you've been totally committed to keeping people informed of what's happening and uh, of the issues that Puerto Ricans are facing. I agree. So, uh, we all in, uh, we enjoyed the Puerto Rican construction and the partnering with the Puerto Rican community here so much, and we learned so much, and I think we all got to rethink our the relationship with Puerto Rico a lot and uh, what's going on with people there, and uh, it was great. Thank you. And uh, so this Sunday we will be celebrating the 25th annual um, celebration of the Three Kings Ampaseo Boricua. We will do this as part of a long history of celebration of Three Kings Day. In Puerto Rico, the Three Kings are actually considered saints, which in no other tradition, son los reyes, los santos reyes magos. So, the, and it is based on really a historic commitment uh, and a part of the Puerto Rican imaginary that for the past almost 500 years, uh, Puerto Ricans have celebrated Three Kings Day in a way that most people in Latin America, where it's also a very important day, do not celebrate. In Puerto Rico, it has a very peculiar meaning because the uh, middle king, the three kings are always placed as side by side. The middle king is Melchor, who is the black king. And this was done by Puerto Rican santeros, who were the woodcarvers, who actually in their imagination, the only king that they knew, the only black king they knew was obviously Melchor. If three people are uh, traveling side by side, the one that's leading and probably the wisest will be the middle. So therefore, we have this very long tradition of commitment to this imagination. And the three kings do not ride on horses. I'm sorry, on camels. They ride on horses, not just on any horse, but on the Pasofino horses. And the, in many ways, this sort of the racial script is... Uh, sort of turn upside down in that representation because it's the black king riding on a white horse. Well, that's terrific. Uh, Nari, you've got more deep history on the three kings. You no, know, fascinating history. Actually, it turned out that Jose and I found out in the green room that we uh, that we agree on a lot of the history. <laughs> Actually, you know, because he already ref uh, referred to Magios in, in Spanish, which is the Magi in English, or the Magi in Persian, which is the way the Zoroastrians refer to their holy men. That's where those three men supposedly come from. But the Persian Empire at that time was a very diverse empire. Cyrus the Persian was considered 
considered to be the king of kings, king of 27 other kings and nations. So it was a very racially mixed empire. So it would not be surprising that three holy men coming from the Persian Empire coming to the uh, Holy Land in Jerusalem and trying to find uh, uh, to, uh, to, uh, so, to, so those stories with slight adjustments it, it all makes sense, it all fits together And uh, the idea of saints, uh, why, how did this happen? So what, what, we, I, I think different. over the it's years different. what happened is that in, in Puerto Rico obviously you didn't have a lot of churches so people built uh, altars in their homes, they were called nichos and during the Three Kings celebration, which begins on, right after um, uh, Noche Buena, which is the obviously Christmas Eve, you begin the celebration of the Three Kings, and then rosaries that are sung, uh, which are chanted, um, are done. Promises are made, promesas, to the three wise men. Um, the children put uh, little boxes of uh, hay or grass for the three kings under their bed so the kings will deliver the three wise men. Pero they're the santos reyes magos. And so it's really, in many ways, the idea of the three kings in Puerto in the Puerto Rican imaginary is very similar to what the imaginary of the Virgin of Guadalupe is to Mexicans. She is right. in many ways the right. reincarnation of an ancient uh, uh, Mexica goddess, Tonatzin. Wow, fascinating stuff. Uh, and that, and I understand that, as you were telling me in the history of Puerto Rico, this all happens at the time when the Spanish influence in Puerto Rico starts to diminish as they conquer other lands yes. in the Latin America, in what today we call Latin America. And uh, this is a, and they start to have less influence in Puerto Rico. And all of a sudden, the indigenous Puerto Ricans and the Africans who had come to Puerto Rico, they start to call the shots culturally. Yes. In, in many ways, they begin. <laughs> <laughs> to re- define what the Puerto Rican identity right, would become. Right, yes. right, yeah. So, yeah. The, and that's where all where all of a sudden the black king comes in. Exactly, and and, and it becomes yeah. part of that imagination right. and the collective uh, expression of the three kings. So, this three kings day, we will be giving out um, gifts. Uh, the three kings will be on uh, a, a a a carriage. Uh, that's horse-driven, and the three kings will be there. We'll have the most amazing three kings. One of them is the middle king, Melchor, is the president of LAMA, the Latin American Motorcycle Association, and he is also the international president. Uh, His name is Mario Nieves, and Mario Nieves Aquino was just made Mm. a chieftain in Nigeria. He has traveled um, throughout the world, so he's the most amazing uh, three my, my guy that we could have. Very cool. So we've gone from camels to horses to Harley Davidson. Exactly. <laughs> We're talking with uh, Jose Lopez, executive director of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center, and talking about their Three Kings uh, festival and parade. So I imagine he could uh, he could ride in on a white Harley, and that would be totally appropriate. That would be. <laughs> yes, okay. I think so. But but you know, one of the things is that it becomes a very popular celebration. There's going to be music. Um, we're going to have, uh, there's a group, uh, West Town Bikes, which basically has a little business on Paseo Borico, Ciclo Urbano. They will have be having bicycles that are um, that are decorated with the three uh, kings. I mean, it's really becomes a popular uh, expression of what happens 
historically in Puerto Rico, but what is happening here in Chicago. And I think it's important for us to understand that as we discuss what we are doing on uh, Paso Boricua, we also think about how important it is to have diversity and cultural differences in this great city of Chicago. Well, it sounds like a great time and a great festival. So you, you, you'll do the parade, and then at the end, kids get the Yes, presents. they will be given. The, so the toys and the gifts will be distributed at the field house inside of the park. And the three kings will be given those to the children. So if you want to in, avoid the, the present frenzy that will ensue, you can do that. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and go get some food. Exactly. exactly. But there, so there will be food and music we, opportunity we're gonna, well, to having We'll be having a hot chocolate, and obviously some cookies for the children. Okay. We invite everybody to then follow and go on Division Street. There's some wonderful restaurants there, okay. and everybody will be celebrating right. Three Kings. So I really invite people to go with their children. We'll be giving gifts for children from 0 to 12. Afterwards, join the various restaurants on Division uh, Street between the California yeah. and uh, on Division between yeah. California and Western. There are eight Puerto Rican eateries there, and you can enjoy a variety of Puerto Rican foods. Now, I imagine you've been doing this for 25 years. You've got generations of people Absolutely. who remember this, and this is this is uh, a thing that the family does Absolutely. every time. Absolutely. We're talking about already grandchildren coming to the parade. Wow. Well, congratulations, uh-huh. and I hope a lot of people turn out for the Three Kings Parade and all the great food on Division Street. Uh, great to see you, Jose Lopez, you. Executive Director of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center, leader in the Chicago Puerto Rican community. Nari Safavi, thanks for another fun weekend passport. We'll catch up with you again next week. Great uh, privilege to be here. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening to Worldview this week. Uh, Next week, we're going to have uh, lots of great programming. Tune in again at noon all week, and we'll have more Worldview for you. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.